Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's holy written word to 1 Timothy chapter 2 as we continue our way through the text this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 2, a passage which I think is conveniently ignored by anyone who can, but for those of us who are either stupid or courageous, uh, we, uh, we honor the Lord's word in all that it says, and that means we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and that means we preach the whole counsel of God's word. And that brings us to passages like this one, which indicate that somehow pregnancy and childbearing is necessary to salvation. We're going to unpack that. That's not what it means. Let me just go ahead and clear the air. That's not what Paul's getting at this morning. But uh, we're going we're gonna to look at this this morning. Before we jump in, a passage like this should remind us of our always our desperate need for God's Spirit to open our minds and our hearts to understand what it is that He is saying to us. And so let's just take this moment before we jump in and ask the Lord to be with us and to help us as we look at His Word this morning. Would you please bow with me? Uh, Father, we thank You for speaking to us, Lord. We thank You for the counsel of your holy written word, those things which you have spoken to us by your Son. But Father, we know that everything you say is an extension of who you are. You are the Logos. You are the Word. And so you don't talk like us. You don't make mistakes. You don't get confused. You don't mistake one word for another word. You don't say something and change your mind. Everything you say is a reflection of your person. And so I pray, God, as we approach this passage this morning, that we would not, Lord, look at this in such a way as to say that somehow you meant something in the first century that you don't intend for us today, that somehow you've changed your mind and you've got a better plan here 2,000 years later. I pray, Lord, If there are any here who are holding those sorts of notions and ideas in their mind as they approach this particular passage, I pray, Father, that your spirit would gently work in their heart right now to hear you afresh, to hear what your word has to say to us anew. I pray, God, that as we look at this text this morning, you would help us to understand as men, Father, how to minister to our sisters in such a way that they would strive to be exactly what you have created and intended them to be. And Lord, I pray for our sisters this morning as they are gathered here with us, that your spirit would use this text to show them that despite what the world considers to be beautiful, you intend something much, much more noble. Father, I pray for our sisters here this morning that as your spirit shines upon this text, this week and next, that you would show us all what is truly beautiful in your eyes. We pray you'd have your way with us this morning in your word. We commit this time to you. Be with us now, Spirit, in Jesus we pray. Amen. I love optical illusions. You know, when you go into different stores, they'll have, you know, 3D holographic cards and these sorts of things, and you can pick them up and you can hold them in the light, and depending on which way you twist and you turn them in the light, different images within the card will jump out and present themselves to you. I love those sorts of things, but I think more than the 3D sort of twist in the sunlight sort of optical illusions, I think I'm more of a fan of the classical 2D, two-dimensional optical illusions uh, from a previous generation. Uh, I especially enjoy watching people who look at the 2D 
you know, two-dimensional optical illusions, and they've been told there's another image hidden within this image. And they're looking, and they're looking, and they can't quite see it, and then all of a sudden they see it, and the look on their face when they see it for the first time is absolutely priceless. I love to see that discovery. And one of the most popular optical puzzles, and I'm sure you've all seen it, dates back to 1888, two centuries back. Uh, It's a German postcard depicting a beautiful woman Or, depending on how you look at it, it's either a beautiful young woman or it's a deeply aged, wrinkled woman. And uh, it's interestingly because when you look at this image, most people, interestingly enough, are inclined to see the young, beautiful woman. And only upon very close looking at it, scrutinizing it, does the older woman eventually emerge. Most people see the young woman Uh, Only a handful of people generally tend to see the old woman first, and both groups have to look to see the one that they're not seeing. What's interesting, scientists have done research. The image that you see first, however you interpret the lines on the paper, that's the image that that you're going to see the rest of your life. And you're always going to have to work harder to see the other image. Now, the reason why I start there this morning is because as we're considering Paul's word to the church, this enduring word from the Lord... As we encounter it, we're going to be tempted to think that what Paul is doing is he's pushing women out to the periphery, that he's shoving them out of the picture, as it were, and he's going to give the most prized and most noble positions of leadership to the men, and he's going to reserve it exclusively for the men. And that as a result, if we're looking at the image the wrong way, what we may be tempted to conclude is that there's no real room in the church for female leadership. And uh, a lot of evangelical Christians, as they've been holding this, two-day, this 2D image of, of 1 Timothy up to the light and looking at it, they've decided to see something else. They've decided to look for a different image than the one that God is presenting to us here. And so for many of us, our ideas regarding male or female leadership are often taught to us and inculcated in us by the world. And what I'd like for us to do is to stop this morning and to consciously try to consider this passage from afresh to see the picture that is here for us in the Word of God, not what the world says is here. And if we've been twisting and turning this image in the light trying to see something else, let us stop and just say, God, you're the one who has spoken. Let us see what you have to say for us. Now, first off, and I've already mentioned this, the book of 1 Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy, as well as Titus, are written to specific pastors, Timothy in one instance, Titus in the other, but they are written with a view towards how the church should be structured, how the church should be organized, and the proper manner in which business and worship is to be conducted within the church. Again, reminding you of chapter 3 and verse uh, six, uh, verse, verse uh, 15, he says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul's statement to Timothy is, I hope to come to you, I want to visit you, but if I'm not able to make it on time, if I'm delayed, if I'm not able to get there, the whole reason I'm writing this letter is so that you'll know how it ought to be in the church. Okay? Now, just to refresh your memory, because it's been over a month now since we saw this passage, chapter 2 began with Paul saying, first off, the first thing I want to see happen in the church is I want to see prayers and supplications made for all people. God wants all people to be saved. Jesus Christ died for all people, so we need to be praying for all people. That's the first thing. And then as he comes down, he reiterates this in verse 8. 
And this is a very uncomfortable passage for the men in the house, but nonetheless, Paul says what he says. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands and not quarreling with anger. And then he goes on to talk about the women. Likewise, the women also, they should adorn themselves respectably. And he talks about what the, how the women ought to dress and how the women should adorn themselves. That's all well and fine. We said what we needed to say there. It's happened. It's done. We're moving forward. You're like, yes, we're on to easier things. Yeah, like saved through childbearing. Easier. Absolutely. I hope you know that I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek, okay? The point being that as you look at the context of chapter 2, and as you understand the larger picture of the whole book, there's no way of approaching this particular passage and saying that this doesn't have bearing for what goes on inside the church. That is clearly what Paul is getting at. He is speaking to how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God. And in this particular chapter, chapter 2 and chapter 3 for that matter, he is going to talk about male-female gender relationships and how the ladies are to relate to the men and how the men are to relate to the ladies and how both come together to do this thing that we call church. And so continuing on that long, that same line, he says in verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, here's the statement. Women should not be preaching or teaching or in any way exercising authority over men. All right, good, good. Nobody's throwing anything yet. That's good. Now, we're going to take this message in two parts. Next week, I'm going to come back. I'm going to circle back around. I'm going to look at verse 11 and 12 together with the last section of verse 15 where it says they continue in faith and steadfastness and holiness and self-control. We're going to look at the last portion of verse 15 and the first portion of this passage here, verses 11 and 12. We're going to look at those in more depth next week. I'm just going to break this down here. Paul's argument is here's what we do. Here's how it ought to be in the church. And... Here's why this is. This Sunday, he says, here's why this is. He gives two arguments in in, uh, verses uh, 13 and 14. And we're going to look at that today. Here is why this is. Just with a brief introductory statement, this is how it is. Basically, women don't exercise or teach or, or have authority over, they don't exercise authority or teach or have any kind of sway over the men. That's what he's getting at. Today, we're going to look at that more in depth, what that, how that's supposed to unfold in the church. We're going to look at that more in depth next week. But today, we're going to look at the why. Why does Paul say this? He says in verses 11 and 12, a woman should learn quietly with submissiveness, a word that should grate on all of us if we're sinners, which is all of us, submissiveness. Verse 12, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, here's the explanation. Here's what we're going to be looking at today. It's two statements. One is a positive statement, and one is a negative statement. All right? The first statement is this. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, and then 
Eve. Namely, Eve was formed second. Now, in order to understand exactly what Paul is saying here, we'd have to consider this statement in its historical context. He's clearly alluding to the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were created, when God formed and fashioned them. So if we're going to understand Paul's argument here to the church and subsequently to all churches, we're going to have to really understand what he's getting at with the creation story, with how man and woman were formed. So I invite you now, in your word, to turn back to Genesis chapter 2 with me. We're going to look at this. In Genesis chapter 2, this is the first man and the first woman. God is creating them. And in Genesis chapter 2, the account of this is given for us. And we find, starting in verse 15, God makes man, and then he takes man, and he gives man a job. It says in verse 15, the Lord God took the man, and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, as we consider this, uh, this first sort of uh, this introduction into our, our message this morning, it's important to note that what a man does is part of who he is. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to different biblical counseling conferences or different preaching conferences, and I've heard, you know, on occasion, a different pastor or somebody will stand up and say, hi, I'm John, I work in construction, as though all we are is what we do. And then they go on to lambast that and say that our identity is not what we do. There is a portion of truth to that statement. If you're a plumber, or if you're an electrician, or if you work in the teaching profession, if you're a professor at TRU, by no means do not hear me saying that you are just what you do. You are nothing more than a professor, or an electrician, or a plumber, or a lawyer. That's not what I'm saying. We are people created in the image of God. But a part of who God has made us is what we do. Form and function in terms of who we are, created in the image of God, are interrelated. God created us for a purpose. So when I introduce myself and I say, hi, I'm Joshua Claycamp. Oh, yeah, and we get to talking at a social gathering party, Christmas party, whatever. Eventually, sooner or later, the conversation goes to the topic of employment. What do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a preacher. Now, normally for me, that's when the conversation comes to a grinding halt, okay? <laughs> Most of the time, people are like, oh, oh, I, you know, I'll see you later. Okay, that happens to me. So I don't normally get a lot further beyond that. But here's the reality. That's preaching is who I am. That's who I am. It's not what I do. Hear me carefully now. Preaching is who I am. Yes, it's an activity. It is something I do. But it's what God formed me for. Yes, I'm a child of God. Yes, I'm created in the image of God. Yes, I trust in Jesus. By the blood of Christ, I've been adopted to the family of the Lord. That is who I am. But a part of who I am, I am a preacher, okay? I do preaching. Form and function are interconnected. We see that here in Genesis. Right off the bat, and you can't miss this, because if you miss this, everything that follows will be hazy and confusing, and it won't stick out to you in prominent relief like it ought to. So beginning here, the Lord God took the man, and he, God, put him in the garden just for Adam to say, I'm Adam, And not to have a job to do? No, not at all. It says, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. He's supposed to be a gardener. He's supposed to take care of the Lord's earth. This is his function, which flows out of his form of who God has made him to be. All right, so don't miss that. Now, how many of you in here have ever owned an iPhone? I raise my hand, I own an iPhone. 
Any here, anybody here early adopters that got the first generation iPhone? Okay, well, there we go. The techie from Austin. Very good. Now, here's one of the biggest complaints that people have with iPhones. And I would say Apple in general, the company as a whole. Steve Jobs had this business philosophy where with every designed product he put together, he built into it what he called, you know, built-in obsolescence. In other words, he's putting together an iPhone. The first iPhones had like two megapixel cameras built into it. And you could take pictures. And back in 2007 when the iPhone first came out, that was cool. But when he released the first generation iPhone with two megapixel cameras, he already had built on the drawing table, ready, ready to go for the next generation, iPhones with five megapixel cameras. So that you would buy the two megapixel camera and be like, woohoo, I got an iPhone, two megapixel camera. And then in another year, the next generation of iPhone will come out and he'd be like, oh, you got to upgrade. You got to get the five megapixel camera, right? Sometimes when people look at this passage, they think that what God did was he made a mistake. He made man, and then he kind of stepped back and he considered it. And he's like, mm, something not quite right here. There's some sort of obsolescence built in here. I need to rectify that. I need generation 2.0. Woman, here we go, right? Now, for some of us, that's how we read it. Like, somehow God was like, eh. Some of us are thinking, no, God was diabolical, uh, he wanted us to buy into version 2.0, and that's why he made Adam, you know, what he did. God knew from the very beginning that Adam, God created Adam and formed Adam and knew from the beginning Adam, as a man, was not intended nor sufficient to imaging the full character of God, okay? To image God, to reflect God to the world, which is the calling on all of us, it isn't done in just men, and it isn't done in just women. That's what's about to happen. So we continue. Um, he told, but before we get to there, he says, You can eat every, of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now, moving on. Verse 18, the Lord God said, notice this. It is not good that man should be alone. This isn't God saying, version 1.0 isn't good enough, let's go version 2.0. No, 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 version 1.0 was good, but his isolation and his loneliness was not good. Notice that. Version 1.0 was good, and this is not to take away from version 2.0, ladies, don't misunderstand me, but version 1.0 was not intended to be alone. God's statement here, and it's not like it's catching God by surprise, like, oh, like, I messed it up here. He needs a buddy to be with him. That's not what God is saying. This isn't for God's benefit that we're walking through this. He's walking Adam through this for Adam's benefit. And, subsequently, men for our benefit. He says here in verse 18, It's not good that man should be alone. Therefore, I will make him a helper fitted for him. Okay, that's the meaning of the Hebrew. A helper that is properly constructed in such a way, it's a helper, so it's a person that is properly constructed in such a way to help him, fitted for him. Okay, that's what he says there. Now, here's the deal though. Will Adam like version 2.0? 
God's going to walk at him through all the alternatives first, and that's smart. Verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And of course, Adam went ahead and named all these creatures. And then whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens and every beast that was in the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now notice that. God is going to fit a helper for Adam. All the other creatures are brought to Adam, and nothing fit Adam. What's the reference point here for version 2.0? What fits Adam? Ladies, are you hearing me? Form and function flow together. Adam is designed to tend a garden. Adam is looking for version 2.0, a helper that is fitted him all the birds all the all the cats and dogs all the animals you know all that stuff that we call man's best friend but really isn't they were all brought to adam and he said not fitted for me so what are we going to do well adam it's time for some rib surgery this is what happens next so Verse 22, uh, sorry, verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Therefore, the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Now, first thing I want you to notice, verse 18, go back and look. It's not good for man to be alone. Not good. A number of years ago, in the early days of Bridge Baptist Church, there was a man that it was discovered in time. He was engaged in an extramarital affair. His wife came and disclosed to the pastoral leadership that this individual was cheating on his spouse, and she called upon us to confront him, which we did. We had a number of conversations with this individual, but the one that stands out to me the most. We were meeting over here at uh, Tim Hortons on the North Shore, and we sat down one evening to plead with this man to turn from his sin, to come back to his wife, to love her as God intended. And as we were talking, I, I wasn't the one doing all the talking. There was another, another pastor there that was doing the talking. He was kind of taking lead. I had taken lead on previous conversations. I wasn't slacking off, but it was his turn. So anyway, he was taking the lead and, and calling this man to repentance. And uh, I was just sitting there listening. And the man's statement was, you know, my whole life I've been married since I was 18. Got married at a young age. And he made the statement. He said, I can't continue to be with my wife because one thing that I have realized is that before I'm ready for an emotional commitment, this sounds just like everything you hear guys say all the time. It's a total lie. The statement was, before I'm ready for an emotional commitment, I need to learn how to be okay being alone. And he said that, and immediately I was like, what? Now, I hadn't just read Genesis 2 that morning. It probably had been a while, a couple months, maybe a year since I'd refreshed myself on Genesis 2. And the only way I can describe this was it was the Holy Spirit of God doing what he does. Because I didn't have the time to consciously think, Genesis 2.18, it's not good for man to be alone. I didn't have the time to think that because before I knew it, my words were already saying, Genesis 2.18, it's not good for man to be alone. But I didn't have the time to think it. And I wasn't really, I'm not, I'm not sure how it happened. My lips were moving before I knew what was happening. 
And I can only attribute it to the power of the Holy Spirit. As soon as I quoted this verse, smacked right between the eyes. I said, how can you get around Genesis 2.18? God knows you're alone. And he doesn't want you to learn to be okay being alone. You're not meant for that. You weren't created for that. You were meant for your wife. You were meant to have her be with you. Men, listen. We are not without our ladies. Let me say that again. Men, we are not men. We are not what we are supposed to be without our ladies. A number of years ago, there was a movie, and I don't recommend this movie. Don't, don't listen. Don't, don't go out and rent this or anything. But a number of years ago, there was a movie. It came out when I was high school. Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise, Renee Zellweger. It's a romance movie. It wasn't a very good romance movie, but there was one line in that movie which will go down for all of eternity in pop culture. We'll never forget it. It has an echo of biblical truth to it. I remember seeing this movie with my wife. We're sitting in the movie theater. We're watching this thing. This is before we were married. We are still dating at the time. And the character played by Tom Cruise, Jerry Maguire, comes to Dorothy, the lady played by Renelle Zell- Zellweger, and uh, he's pleading with her to give him a second chance. They'd had a fight. It's a romance comedy, you know. So, of course, there's some drama that happens there, you know, romance drama. Guys are like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's that kind of a movie. And uh, so they're, he's pleading with her, please come back to me, please come back to me. He's, he's talking to her, and he's giving this long, drawn-out romantic pitch, and she's just sitting there like, mm-hmm, yeah, listening, and you're not really sure what she's thinking or whatever, but then there's this line in the movie where he says, you complete me. Any guys here ever heard that line before? Yeah. And all the ladies in the theater were like, oh. And all the guys in the theater were like, man, I'm going to have to buy something. I'm going to chocolate roses. Uh, I'm going to have to do something here. Now, here's the thing. It may have been written by a Hollywood writer and produced in a Hollywood movie that, by the way, I don't recommend, don't encourage you to see this movie. Okay? But it, it was so good because it has the echo of eternity. It has the echo of truth in it. It's what God says here in Genesis 2. Men are not without their ladies. Understand that. Ladies, you understand where I'm going at, getting at with this whole statement? This is the biblical truth. So whatever Paul is saying in chapter 13, uh, sorry, chapter 2, verse 13 of 1 Timothy, when he says that women are not to teach or to exercise authority over men. They're to be submissive. They're to learn quietly. They're not to teach or to have control over do, or dominion over men. The first argument he makes is this. Adam was formed first and then Eve. That's his argument. And he's saying, if you go back and you look at the original created order, Adam comes first. Now, when we make that statement, men and women, hear me carefully, men are not without their women. We are not complete, to quote Jerry Maguire. We are in need of our sisters and the opposite gender. It's not optional. It's a necessity. It is not good that man be alone. Now, ladies, we come to you. You were not formed first. You are fitted 
for men. That's exactly what the Word of God is saying. You are fitted for them. When it comes to the way things should be conducted in the church, the first thing Paul is saying is this. The men need to exercise leadership because before there was sin, before there was a fall, before there was a curse, before this world became broken as we know it, the created order, the way God intended it when things were beautiful and perfect in Eden was that men would take a leadership role and women would help them. That's how it was intended by design. That's the first statement that Paul is making. He's quoting here Genesis 2. And when he says that, immediately we start to fly off in the handles and be like, yeah, I don't need her. And she's thinking, yeah, I don't need him. Wrong, wrong, wrong. We need each other. We're meant for each other. We go together. Okay? That's number one. And then the next argument Paul makes comes here in chapter 3. The next argument Paul makes is he makes a negative argument. First is the positive argument. We are designed for each other. We go together, and there's a way that that design is formed and shaped with men being leaders and women being helpers. Negative argument is essentially this. One of the reasons we're in this whole mess of the curse, the fall, the brokenness that we know is because women, Eve specifically, stepped out of that created order. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait, whoa, 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 wait, wait, whoa, whoa. It was all about an apple. She ate a forbidden apple. It's about diet. It's about what we eat, what we put in our mouths, and what we listen to Satan about regarding what we eat. Look more carefully at the text. And when I get into this, it's important to say that Eve was deceived and the man was not. That's what Paul says. But in no way am I saying that somehow men have some sort of more sophisticated degree of spiritual discernment over women. That's not the case at all. Immediately when we get into this next argument, immediately the world starts to fly off at the handles and starts to get into degrees of superiority and inferiority where it's like, well, women are stronger than men in this particular category, such as quilting or sewing. Okay, they're superior because men need clothing or else they'd freeze to death. And then immediately the women will get off into a category of superiority on their own, in which they say, well, women need men because we're strong and we keep them safe at night. And then the women say, I could, I could take you down if I wanted to. And then the women, oh, let's bring it. And then, you know, next thing we know, we're getting into this whole back and forth thing, right? We immediately get off into categories of inferiority and, su- and superiority. Who's stronger or better at which, what, and the other. And we bring that faulty understanding that faulty fallen reasoning to this text and we say that what's going on here is that women are spiritually inferior in terms of their discernment because eve was deceived eve was deceived but that's not the point of the text Look at the text carefully. Genesis 3. Here's where it all goes sideways. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. I'll say he basically approaches Eve with a can of poison with the skull and the crossbones, bright yellow container, and says, you know this poison you're not supposed to drink? She's like, yeah. And he says, it's really tasty. You want to try some? And she says, yeah, okay, I'll try some. I mean, you and I, if we were approached on the street by some guy with a lovely class of, you know, something acidic and poisonous, we'd say, thank you kindly, but no thank you. I don't want to die today. That's how clever Satan is. 
he approaches Eve with a proposition to do what she knows should not happen. Okay? Here's what he says. Did God actually, verse, we're still in verse 1, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's questioning God's word right off the bat. Did God really say that? Did he really say that? This is the trick as old as time. Let us undermine what God is saying in the word. Let us undermine his truth. Let us question it or twist it or contort it and make it sound like he didn't say it or he meant something else when it's very clear, plain as day, what he's getting at. She responds, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but he said, God said, you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. That one, can't touch it. Very simple. No cultural sort of, uh, you know, he said this back in the day when it was a different society, a different way of living. Who knows what he really meant? Nothing like that is very straightforward. God said this, here's what he means. Fair enough. But now comes the blasphemy. Verse 4. Serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die if you eat that. You won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You don't really have your best interests at heart, Eve. God the Father, he's selling you a bill of goods. Here's the nature of the lie. You're quick to think that what it is is it's, hey, this is a really tasty poisonous apple. Why don't you eat this? You might even be tempted to think that what Eve is trying to do is become like God. That's a part of it. But look very carefully at what's said. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took underline that, she took of its fruit and she ate, underline that, she ate of its fruit and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. That verse right there is when it all goes downhill. Who's the subject of that sentence? She. She does this. She does that. She considers this. She concludes that. She takes. She eats. She gives. She's doing all the action. She's doing it all. Adam is with her. And what's Adam doing? Nothing. He's observing this and saying nothing. And she is not consulting with him. She has been a helper fitted for Adam. He is the one commissioned with the job to care for the plants in the garden. He's the gardener. Furthermore, he's the one that was told by God, this is the tree you don't eat. He's the one managing the vineyard, managing the garden, responsible for all the trees, responsible for all the fruit. He's the one that had direct communication with God. And Eve comes in the picture, and she's deceived, yes. But the thrust of that verse, which is the key to why everything is broken, is not she was deceived. It's that she did, she took, she ate, she gave, she was acting apart from her mate. Does this interpretation have any scripture that will support it? If you look further in chapter 3, the curses are helpful. The Lord God comes to him, Adam, what have you done? Who does the first person he talks to? 
talks to the man. Who's responsible? The man. Who is supposed to be the one taking the leadership here? He is. What does he do? It was the woman that you gave me. Your fault, her fault, not my fault. In other words, the leadership role he abdicated in front of Satan, he continued to abdicate that leadership role in front of God. He started off saying, I'm not going to take responsibility. I'm not going to take charge. I'm not going to lead. I'm not going to be helpful here. And then when God shows up, he just continues more of the same. I'm not responsible. It's not my deal. It's her deal. It's your deal. It's everyone else's deal. It's not my deal. You point a finger, men, there are three more pointing back. And if you hook your thumb back, there's four. Seriously, guys. Next time you're quick to blame someone else, you remember God puts you here to be a man. Okay? The curse starts off with Eve acting apart from the leadership and the counsel of her husband. God shows up to bring correction. The man points the one finger at her when he's got three others pointing right back at him. God turns to Eve. Eve, what's the deal? It was the snake's fault. It was the creature whom I'm supposed to be helping my husband exercise your dominion over. He tricked me. He deceived me. Not my fault, his snake's fault. And so, of course, God starts off with the curse to the snake in verse 14. But now you jump down to verse 15. Here's what he says. I will put enmity, talking to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, The word offspring could also be translated seed. I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of woman. This is what we call the proto-gospel, the proto-evangelion. This is the first promise that there's a savior coming to rescue us that will be born of a woman, not a man. This is a reference to the virgin birth of Christ. So he makes that promise to the Satan, to the serpent, to Satan. And then in verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for or against your husband. That's the meaning of that Hebrew word there. Your desire shall be against him, but he shall rule over you. What has taken place in the garden in which the woman has acted independently and autonomously of her mate, in which the woman has stepped out and said, I'm going to make decisions on my own. I'm not going to consult the one whom God has prepared for me that I am supposed to be one with. That reality of you stepping out, that is going to be perpetuated throughout history and time until God creates a new heavens and a new earth. The curse is this. You will want to be against your husband. You will want to rule over him, but he shall rule over you. Now, for the man who was there the whole time and saw the whole thing happening and just sort of stuck his hands in his pockets and said, oh, I don't know, it's not my deal. I don't know what's going on here. Abdicating his role of leadership, the curse holds true for him as well. To the man, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, And this is not a reference towards consulting and considering the counsel of his wife. It's a reference to the fact that he didn't take the leadership role he was called to. Because she led you. Because she did what you were supposed to be doing. Because you listened to her and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, man, you, Adam. Because you have done that, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of the ground you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, Adam, you're a little lazy. You like to abdicate your responsibilities. Guess what the curse holds for men? Ladies know the answer. They're lazy. You got to hound them incessantly to take out the trash. Why take out the trash when I can sit here in my recliner with a Twinkie? (laughs) I know the trash is full. It ain't going to be any less of a problem tomorrow. It'll fill up again. I'll just sit here, find my time, eat my Twinkie. Men, you know this is true. Ladies, you know this is true. Whereas the lady is now cursed with a heart that cannot find rest and cannot find submission in the leadership of her husband. She has now placed before her a constant reminder, a temptation for why maybe she shouldn't trust in her husband because now men are cursed with a laziness to do the work that God has called them to do. This is the meaning of the curse. When Paul says within the church, here's what needs to happen. Women don't teach or exercise authority. They're to learn quietly in submissiveness. What he's saying here is Jesus Christ came to save us from the curse. If Jesus Christ came to save us from the curse, That means his desire is that we go back to the created order that he created us to follow. What that means is that we're not supposed to be abdicating our role, men, as leaders. What that means, ladies, is that you do not have the same responsibilities in the church as the men do. Hear me very carefully now. If Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, as it says in 1 John chapter 3, he came to destroy the works of the devil, then we need to understand the first work of the devil was this, tempting the woman to step out of her ordained role by God to be a helper for the man and destroying the leadership role of the man and destroying the helper role of the woman. If that's the first work of the devil in the Garden of Eden, then one of the first aspects of repentance for us who have surrendered our lives to the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ is that number one, even though it is a drudgery to do work, number one, men, step up. Be a leader in your home. Be the spiritual leader that God always intended for you to be. Number one, men, repent of your laziness. Work hard. Provide for your family. Take care of your wife. Lead your family spiritually. Number two, ladies. Paul's statement is very clear. Beauty is not found in this misguided attempt of feminism to shatter glass ceilings and to kick down doors And to assert, I am woman, hear me roar. Anything man can do, I can do better. That's a lie from Satan. That's the first lie of Satan. We are not 
inferior or superior to each other. We are equals in worth and value, but we were fundamentally created for different roles, different responsibilities. When you say, hi, my name is Josh, and in this gender-confused time in which we are living, I'm a man, just so you know. Or if my wife introduces herself and says, hi, my name is Shanti, and in this gender-confused time in which we are living, I'm a woman, just so you know. We're saying that there's a part of who we are that wasn't ours to choose. It was given to us by God's design and by God's creation. It was intended for our blessing and for our joy. And if in our claim to follow Christ, we are still somehow trying to reduplicate the mistakes of the garden, we won't know the joy and the blessing that God wants to give us. Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil How tragic it is that as Christians, knowing this truth in our churches, we are seeking to perpetuate the garden in church leadership. On my hand, with these five fingers, I can count the number of churches in this town that still believe in complementarianism and the fact that men should lead and women also have a leadership role in serving and assisting men. Five evangelical churches that would still hold to that in this, in this town, maybe less, that would hold to that idea by conviction. And the vast majority of the rest of the churches in this town who are evangelical, they would not hold to that. They would say that women can be pastors same as men. And when you approach the leadership of these churches, you say, okay, break this down for me. Why exactly do you think that? You'll get sort of a circular argument. That's always the case. Well, women can do the same things that men can do. Really, because biologically they can't. Women can give birth. Men cannot. Sometimes you hear a man say, we're giving birth to a child on next week, you know, our due date is next week, we're doing this. Joe Riley does this perfectly, I love it. If you're ever with Joe Riley and somebody says that, he won't skip a beat. He'll say, oh, you're giving birth next week, are you? Oh, well, no, no, not me. My wife is. My wife is, right? Guys, we can't give birth. Anybody here surprised? (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. Ladies, biologically on the whole, you cannot be as strong as a man. There are some pretty hoss ladies out there. But you understand, on the whole, on the balance, average man is going to be stronger than your average woman. There's a biological reason for that. We come to church leadership, and you approach it, and you say, you approach somebody, and you say, listen, in your church, I understand you have female pastors that are leading the church spiritually, that are teaching, and yet it's very clear in 1 Timothy, Paul's statement to the church, church in Ephesus and churches today, They're not to be permitted to do that. How do you get around that? And the response is, well, they're not pastors in the same sense that our male pastors are pastors. They say, oh, okay, well, like, what do you mean? Well, they look after the kids, or or they take care of women's ministries. They say, oh, okay, so they're not actually pastors. I say, well, no, 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 they're pastors. Well, you just said they weren't. Well, they're not pastors, like, we're pastors, so they're not pastors. No, 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 they're the same as us. They can do all the same things as us. And around and around the argument goes. If they're not doing what you're doing, then why do they have the same label that you have? 
If there is a difference between your role and their role, why do you say that they're the same? Well, because they're the same as us. They can do all the same things that we can do. And somewhere I hear that song continuing to sing in the back of my mind. Anything he can do, I can do better. But biblically, you can't. Not because you're inferior or you're somehow not as good as a man, but because that's not the role God created you for. So here's the deal. If the Christian life is about drawing nigh to God, as we just sang, if the Christian life is about being reconciled to the Father by the blood of Christ, nothing but the blood, as we just sang, and if we recognize that this separation occurred in the garden, which it did, And if upon careful scrutiny of looking at what transpired in the garden, what we see there was that men and women both stepped out of their God-ordained, God-appointed roles, then how does it square that we as a church are going to draw nigh to God, to be reconciled to God, to receive all the blessings that God has for us through a restored relationship with him, if we're perpetuating the garden within the leadership of our church, if we are reenacting with our employment and our job titles exactly what it was that broke us, is that a church? Is that a church that's worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth? This is a very dangerous thing that is happening. And now we are reaping the fruits of it. As it has been transpiring for the last 40, 50 years now. Culture wasn't content to say women can do everything that men can do and better. Now we have gender confusion. Now we have transgenderism. Now it doesn't matter whether you're man or woman at all. In other words, what God had created you to be and who he purposed for you to be is irrelevant. You get to be whatever you want to be the lie continues to be perpetuated. But you see, I hear that, and then there's another side of that that we need to be careful to pay attention to. I don't know who Jen Wilkin is. Anybody here know who Jen Wilkin is? So I'm not the only one. I feel so much better about that. In November, I was reading an article in Christianity Today by Hannah Anderson, in which Hannah Anderson made the comment, she was referencing a tweet on social media And she referenced a tweet by a lady named Jen Wilkin. And Jen Wilkin made this comment on Twitter. She said, Pastor, which would be myself, Pastor Ryan, Pastor Al. I don't think any of these guys know who this is either. So I'm I'm in safe safe territory here. Pastor, if you had to ask yourself, who is Jen Hatmaker? Then it's time to be more invested in in the feminine half of your church. What a rebuke. What a rebuke. Jen Wilkin is tweeting that if I don't know who Jen Hatmaker is, then I don't care about the ladies in my church. Anybody here know who Jen Hatmaker is? Oh, man. Okay, some of you know. Good. I don't know Jen Hatmaker. I don't know Jen Wilkin. You've heard the expression, guy doesn't know Jack Squat. Well, apparently I don't know Jen Squat. So I never heard of these names. Hannah Anderson is rebuking pastors, me, for not knowing who these people are. Apparently, Jen Hatmaker is a, a, 
a lady in, uh, based in Austin, Texas, the, they all come from Austin, Texas, just so you know, um, who has taken the view that uh, obviously homosexuality is acceptable and a, a number of other views that are inconsistent with scripture. But the thing about Jen Hatmaker is that she's a very popular and a very apparently gifted speaker and women are flocking to her teaching in droves. Same as Beth Moore, same as a lot of these ladies. They are wanting to teach. They are wanting to preach the scriptures. They are finding that there is not an avenue for them to exercise their giftedness within the church. They're reading this passage from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, and they're seeing the 2D image the wrong way, and they're concluding, I don't have a role in the church, so they are establishing parachurch ministries, teaching ministries outside of the church, and by far and large, ladies in all of our evangelical churches and a few of you even in here today are flocking to this teaching. And I know what it is. It's because you're hungry for good teaching from the word of God that is tailored specifically to your female concerns. So when Hannah, when Hannah Anderson writes this rebuke in Christianity Today in this November article and says, hey, pastor, if you don't know who Jen Hatmaker is and what's going on with her recently, then it's time for you to be paying a little bit more attention to the female half of your church. When she raises that criticism, ladies, I want you to understand, I hear it, it stings, it gets me right between the eyes. I want you to know there is a place for you in this church. There is a role for female teaching in this church. But it cannot occur in a way that violates what God created us to be. So she's writing this article. And a little, she's going on to say, you know, ladies need to have opportunity to teach. They need the men to equip them, to prepare them, to step into this role, to teach other ladies, to teach in ways that are appropriate to their gender. And she's continuing to emphasize this. And then you come down to this, and I'm, I'm reading this. I'm like, yeah, I'm tracking with you. I'm tracking with you. It's good. I hear what you're saying. I, I'm being rebuked. And okay, I'm listening to that. And then we come down, working our way through this piece on Christianity Today. And she makes this statement. The way forward is for the church to identify and support gifted women. All well and good. I agree with that. Partnering with them. So far, so good. Via theological training and commissioning them to gender-appropriate ministries. Check, 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 check. This next sentence. Whoa. If, pastor you don't want women breaking down the doors of your church, you better open them for them or else. Well, I was with you up until that sentence right there. Ladies, I want to open the door for you to step into the role that God has for you. Some of you absolutely wonderful, gifted teachers, I've heard some of you. You bless my heart. As a pastor, I want to open the door like a gentleman and say, here is your role. Here's what God has for you. Please, by all means, step out. Find that blessing that God has for you. But if your heart is, hey, Bubba, step out of my way. Open that door. I'm kicking it open. We have gone from the cross of Jesus Christ back to the garden. You have gone from being someone who could potentially bless me, bless my family, bless my church to a spiritual threat. If you kick open those doors, ladies, hear me, because 
when we come to the realization that we're underdogs, that we are the weaker vessel, all too often the response of our hearts is to be proud and to rise up with clenched fists and to say, I can do it better. Ladies, if you want to kick down those doors, then you cannot open them properly. If you want to achieve or establish yourself in ministry by means of rebellion and not submission and humble dependence upon the Lord, then whatever ministry it is that you're thinking you're establishing, you're working for the other side. Hear me very carefully today. You have a role to play. It is not as a pastor. You may have the gift of teaching and you have a role to play in that gift of teaching but it must conform to what God created you for. And so we bring our teaching time to a close this morning. And this is part one of a two-part sermon. So the question that you're probably asking in your minds is this. What can I do if I'm a lady? What role can I exercise in the church that is honoring and glorifying to God? And how do I go about achieving that? And oh, by the way, pastor, this whole getting saved through childbirth thing, you never even actually touched on that. I know that's what you're thinking. You got to come back next week, okay? So you got to hear part two. I leave the juiciest part for the conclusion so you don't leave me hanging next week. Go away, not hearing the whole story. As we conclude this morning, I want you to understand. The relationship of men and women, it's like a 2D image. And if we see it the way that the world sees it, we miss what is beautiful. And my prayer for you is that you would step into the beautiful purpose of God's design. So as you go away this week, some of you are probably really grating with some of this stuff. You're like, eh, I don't know, man. Some of the stuff isn't really setting well with me. By all means, call me, email me. Let me sit down with you and talk with you. But my prayer for you as you go away this week is that you would take that 2D image. You would pray to the Lord and you'd say, God, help me to see what is truly beautiful and to see the image that's here in your word that you have prepared for me to see. Let's close. Father, we thank you so much for your truth and your word. And Father, we thank you so much for the beauty of the relationship that you have designed for us to, to walk in, men and women working together, complementing each other. And God, we all want to rebel. We all, we all don't want to submit. We don't want to follow you. And that impacts us in different ways as men and women. But I pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see that the way back to you is not through persistent rebellion, but through surrender. As we worship you here in a moment, Lord, I pray, God, if there are any here who are not submitting their lives to you and are not finding the joy and the freedom of surrender, I pray, God, that you would tantalize them with the truth that you are good. And I pray, God, that they would taste and see that your plan is wonderful and perfect. And if there are any here who are still clinching to their rights and doing it their way and kicking through doors and breaking through glass ceilings, I pray, God, you'd bring them back next week and show them a better path. But, Father, we love you, and we pray you do this by your spirit and through your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.